We're beginning a new series today, and uh, so I would love for you to open up your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, if you uh, are new or unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, there's one in the chair in front of you. Feel free to pick that up. Uh, you can check the table of contents at the front. Ecclesiastes is like almost in the middle uh, of the Bible there, if you want to just kind of hunt and find uh, there. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and the words of the Scripture will be on the screen as well. I'd love it if you'd stand with me and let me, uh, let me read God's Word for us today. And then we'll, uh, we'll dive into this uh, text for us together. So why don't you stand with me? Let me read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 for us this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the Word of God. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you today for your wisdom from on high, for your, your grace, and for your love, and for the way in which you speak to us and lead us. And so, Lord, we would pray this morning that as we, as we think about our lives and the meaning and the purpose of our lives, Lord, that you would give us insight today from your spirit to find the ultimate purpose and meaning. That you would help us, Lord, not to look to the things of this world, but to look to you and to lift our eyes to who you are, your creative greatness, your, your wisdom, and your power. Lead us in your word today and, and open our hearts and eyes to see you, to see what you've done for us in Christ. So encourage us and bless us and help us now as we, as we look to your word. Give us wisdom, we pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, some of you may have a big question mark in your mind right now as I read that text, and I know it's a little bit uh, unusual and confusing, and you may even go, what in the world is this guy talking about here, you know, wind and sun and all this moving around, and, and yet I would confess, too, on the face, it looks a little bit perplexing, for sure. We'll dive in and seek to unpack it, but, but a question that, that comes here is, is, how do we find meaning in life? I think that's a, a big question that all of us struggle with in one way or another. How do we find meaning and purpose? How do we know what our lives should be about? And maybe the better question is, where does it come from? Where does meaning and purpose truly come from for our lives and for the way we live and, and how we should be? If you've read the novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a good little science fiction read, there's a computer system in that novel called Deep Thoughts, uh, Deep Thought. And Deep Thought is tasked with answering the question, what is the meaning of life? 
And as the science fiction is just kind of extrapolated out, deep thought, this computer system takes seven and a half million years to calculate and to compute what is the meaning of life and that big question. And, and the computer comes down with the answer. And I know all of you are waiting with bated breath to know, like, you're going to get it today. 42. It's the meaning of life. 42. I have no idea what that is or what that means, but that's what the computer system came up with. 42 is the meaning of life, and, and you're right to chuckle a little bit about that. We can't look to a computer system to give us the meanings of life, right? So we ask the question, where does that come from? How do, we, how do we get it? Where do we find meaning in life today? One of the most pervading worldviews or, or philosophies or systems of thinking today that exists to try and answer that question of where does meaning and purpose in life come from, is the worldview of secularism. It's secularism. And you may say, well, what is secularism? What does that look like? Well, let me quote from the man who actually coined the term. I like to go back and find out where did this term even come from. His name was George Holyoke. He lived at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And George Holyoke, he wrote a book called English Secularism, A Confession of Belief. So even the system that he writes up and speaks about has to do with, with faith of some sort. It has to do with how we find meaning and purpose in life. Holyoke said in this book, he said this, he says, Secularism is a code of duty pertaining to this life, founded on considerations purely human, and intended mainly for those who find theology inadequate or indefinite, unreliable or unbelievable. Its essential principles are three. First of all, the improvement of this life by material means. Secondly, that science is the available providence of man. And thirdly, that it is good to do good. Whether there be good or not, the good of the present life is good. And it is good to seek that good. Holyoke here is just saying that secularism is a life, a material, natural, in-this-world life. It's a life that doesn't need God. He may or may not exist. Holyoke even just declared, you do or don't need religion at all to think this way. Secularism just, it evolves in, and, and lands in material world. To be secular, as Timothy Keller put it, is this. It's ultimately to find all the resources you need for meaning and for life and for personal fulfillment, for morality and working for justice in purely human world, or this world resources. All the resources you need for the meaning of life and for personal fulfillment in purely human, this world resources. That's what secularism is. And it raises a question. Can meaning in life and personal fulfillment be found in purely human, naturalistic, material, this world resources. Can, can we look around and look at the technologies we have, look at the things we have, look at nature even itself, look at, look at all the things of this world and find true purpose and meaning in life? Now, I know many of you might say, well, no, not at all. You can't do that. You'd be adamant to say no, but, but I'm convinced that although we may say no to that question, that we can't find meaning and purpose in the material, natural earthbound things of this life, oftentimes we live as functional secularists. We, we live disconnected from God. That is to say, you may claim the faith of Christianity, but you live a life of a secularist. All you need is what you have. Meaning and purpose in this life is the material of this world, this time, this thing. 
And again, I raise the question, is that how we find meaning and purpose and value in life? Is that where identity truly comes from? Is that where really who we are is based in? The things of this world. Well, I love how ancient literature has a way of presenting to us or, or giving to us sages, wise guides to help us consider and answer these questions. And the Bible is, no, um, is not lacking for wise sages at all. In fact, what we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature from a wise sage inspired by the Holy Spirit to help us discern and understand the meaning and the purpose of life. This is why Sage here is trying to help us answer the question, where do we find meaning? And what is that meaning for us in life? And this book helps us see that sort of thing. We have one who has all the experience of life and wisdom to help us navigate the terrain of finding that meaning. In fact, we can meet him in the first verse there, the words of the preacher, son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might know the story of who David's son was. It was Solomon, Solomon's son, who was the king after David. And Solomon uh, was appointed as king, and, and Solomon wanted to honor the Lord in leading the people, and yet God came to him and said, Solomon, what would you ask? And Solomon, in, in discernment, said, Lord, I'm young, and I'm inexperienced, I don't know how to lead these people, so would you give me wisdom? Would you give me discernment and understanding? And God was pleased to grant Solomon that wisdom and understanding. Many believe that Solomon has written the book of Ecclesiastes. Some scholars would say that it's not Solomon himself, but someone who, understanding or thinking like Solomon, looking at Solomon's life, is able with perception to say, well, Solomon ran the course and he didn't do real well ultimately at the end of the game, but he learned some things. And maybe we could speak as if it were Solomon speaking himself. All we have here is the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, the Hebrew word for preacher, koheleth, that is the sage, the wise one. He identifies himself in that way, and he says, here, I want to lay out for you some wisdom. I want to help you think about the meaning and the purpose of life. And he, he presents himself as a preacher to us through this book. So you're going to meet this preacher who's saying, here's meaning and purpose, at least as best as he can understand it, or through the experimentation of his mind and heart, here's what we can do to find meaning and purpose in life. And so the, sec- the preacher, he asked the question, is the secular dream, is that really where we can find this value, this meaning? He starts by making a huge assertion. It's a huge projection on what life is all about. And he's not optimistic about it either. Look with me at verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, the word here, vanity, the Hebrew word of it, it means breath or mist or vapor. Just this idea of like, it's gone. You just breathe it out and it's, it's so transient. You might say, and this is what we call our series here, smoke and mirrors. It's all just, It's gone. It's there for a second. This is exactly what the band Kansas sang about with the song Dust in the Wind. You you may know the line, same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground that we refuse to see, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. That's how the preacher looks at life. He says, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You can tell right away this guy is not an optimist, at least at this moment. He's looking at life. He's looking at everything. He's going, what does it matter? What does it mean? Dust in the wind. 
And he emphasizes this by asking a question in verse 3. Verse 3 is the big question of this entire book. It's the entire question that many of us ask late at night, awake, unable to sleep. He asks a question. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's it worth? You get up in the morning early. You drive into work. You hang out and work a hard job with people that you really don't like and they maybe don't like you. You work 50, 60 hours a week. You make some money. You come home. You eat a dinner. You watch some shows. You go to sleep and you get up and you do it the next day again and again. What's it worth? What's it mean? What what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You feel his existential crisis, right? It's all meaningless. What's the point? What does he gain? And you notice this phrase here, under the sun. The preacher here will use that phrase again and again. He's looking at life from earth up. He's saying, on this planet, on this earth, under the sun, what's it mean? What does it look like? If you're a high school or college-age student this morning, I just want to lean in here and point this out to you. The Bible here is asking the big questions that you're asking. God, God wants to help you think about how life has meaning and purpose. And you're asking these questions, and you're going to hear a ton of philosophies and ideologies and worldviews about how to make sense of life. And if you're listening here to what God says, or the preacher here as he's speaking through the Holy Spirit, he's saying, under the sun, on this earth, everything looks meaningless. It looks pointless. I want to just invite you to, to hang in with me here, okay? Don't tune out because it's not all meaningless, but, but where we find our meaning and value is so important. Even for, for those of us who are in middle age or are going through the midlife crisis right now, we're asking this question in verse 3, what does it matter? What's the point? God's wanting to speak to us about our lives. He's, he's caring very much about the nine-to-fives that we're working, the mundane in-and-out stuff and saying, does it really matter at all? Does it have purpose? Perhaps, and this is the, the experiment that the preacher begins to undertake, perhaps if we buy the idea of the secular dream, that meaning in life can be found in material, naturalistic things of this world, perhaps we can find meaning in this life. And that's where the the preacher here begins to start. He wants to dive into the realm of naturalism, the things of this world. What do I, what do I mean by naturalism? What does this look like? Well, remember Holyoke's de- definition that secularism is the code of duty pertaining to this life. So the 70 to 90 years that you get, this life. And it's all about how we live in this life, and it's the improvement of life by any means material, the substance and stuff of physical life. And secondly, that science is the available providence of man. The preacher here wants to tackle that second idea. Science is the available providence. By saying available, he means that it's the the ruling, guiding structure or framework of life that we can attain to or that we can grasp. Mankind can reach out and through science we can find definition and order and meaning to life. That's naturalism. Science or natural things is the ruling, defining source, and that's what he means by saying it's the available providence. It's the, if I can put it this way, it's the available God or the God that we can have 
to give us meaning in this life. And I want to ask a question here. Can naturalism really give us meaning? Does naturalism really provide meaning? Whatever you think about ancient sources and ancient literature compared to modern literature, you've got to acknowledge here that the preacher is brilliant. I mean, written several thousand years ago, this wisdom literature, he gets the world that we live in today in the 21st century. In verses 4 through 11, he categorizes naturalism or, or science into two categories. He speaks about earth sciences, and then he speaks about social sciences. And he wants to just examine them. He says, let's just bring them all to the table and look. Can naturalism, can, can these sciences really provide us meaning for all of life? And so he starts by examining the earth sciences, and he makes an observation about the natural world. It's always on a repetitive cycle. Nature is just recycling itself. It's just going through the same motions. He points out four things in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. He starts about the life cycle in verse 4. He says, a generation goes. They, they, they die off. And then another generation comes. But here's the earth. The earth remains forever. The planet's still around. I mean, you think about how generations have cycled. You know, we went from, from the greatest generation to boomers, and then boomers on to, to Gen X, and Gen X had just a brief moment, although we want to forget about them completely, and then we move on to, to millennials, although you millennials are geriatric now, and then we're moving on to Gen Z, and it just keeps moving on and on and on, but here's, here's the earth. There it is. The, the life cycle just keeps going. Or what about the sun cycle in verse, in verse 5? The sun rises and the sun goes down. And then it hastens to the place where it rises again. Or well, that idea of hastens is like it, it runs back and it's like panting, it's weary. This is not a proof text, by the way, for you flat earthers who think that the sun is going to zip back around and start over at the next day, okay? We know the earth is a sphere. But he's making the point from his standpoint of observation. It's like the sun comes up in the east and then it goes down in the west and then it goes back to the east again. Day in and day out, this continual loop, this continual cycle. Well, the wind, verse 6, the wind blows to the south, and it goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. It's, it's like the jet stream, just whipping around the planet. The wind that's here today is somewhere else over the Atlantic tomorrow, and next week it'll be back. Just moving around. Or verse 7, the water cycle. All streams run to the sea. All the water runs to the ocean. But the ocean isn't full. Did you think about that? The ocean never fills up. It just, there it is. And, and yet the water evaporates. We call this the water cycle. It evaporates up into the clouds. The clouds go up into the mountains. It snows, falls down on the mountains. The snow melts, runs down the streams and the rivers again, back into the ocean. Just a big cycle. Just a big pattern there, running around. The sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, you can, you can feel this sense where the, the preacher is saying everything's on a, on a loop. It's like a hamster in his treadmill, and he's running fast, and he's going nowhere. And this is exacerbating to the preacher. He's frustrated. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. You just feel tired thinking about these things. Like, yeah, they're just running around in a big circle. A man cannot utter it. And then he starts thinking about our, our physical bodies. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. You think about it, all the images you look at, everything you watch. If you're ever, I mean, I know our eyes get tired at, at the end of the day, but they open up the next day and more to intake, more to see. It's never a sense where our eyes are like, no, we don't need to work anymore. We've seen enough. Or the ears, hearing. 
Ears are never filled with hearing. They never just turn off and stop. There's always more sound data coming in. The earth sciences he's saying here, they never come to a stop. Always a loop, always full. There's an unquenchable curiosity in us to figure it out too, to try and understand all these things. And, and the preacher says, it's exhausting. All things are full of weariness. We're just tired out. I think this may answer the question of why science keeps going deeper and deeper and broader and broader and further and further down a well of discovery. I mean, you, you never heard a scientist working on something saying, you know what? We, we don't need to trace that down. We, we, we've got it all figured out, right? The guys didn't st- who were examining the atom, they didn't stop at the nucleus and say, you know what? We got the nucleus of the atom. We're good. No, no, they're going in for further more. And I don't even know the science, so I'm not going to say what the words are. But like, they just keep going down, right? We keep looking at stuff. Why are, we're trying to evolve and figure out all these different things. And we get bored with the answers that we have. And we want to see more and figure out more. But it's never, ever ending. Consider this, why do you think a couple billionaires over the last few weeks had to get into space? They had to just launch themselves up into the Earth's atmosphere as as far as they could go. Do you think they found meaning there? Bezos said that he was actually looking for it. He was so excited to go to space because he he knew he would come back changed. Something would illuminate in his mind and he he would figure it out. Elon Musk wants to get us to Mars. Why? It's never enough. It's because we look for meaning in naturalism, in nature, in science. Augustine said our hearts are restless. We're always looking. We're always searching. And, and the earth sciences, in terms of finding meaning, never satisfy us. They don't reveal, they don't give up the answer. So he says his weariness. What about social sciences? And this is where, again, the preacher just delves into another area of study and thinking here in verse 9. He says, what about the social sciences? like history in particular. Maybe history yields the answer. This is what he says. What has been is what will be. And what has been is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. He just just looks at things like history and it's bleak in his outlook. He's like, it's repetitive, it's fixed. There's nothing new. He's not saying that we don't make discoveries or that we don't learn. He's just saying we've been through all this before. We've done it again. Napoleon goes and tries to invade Russia. Doesn't work out so well. Hitler tries the same thing. Could have read a history book and found out you don't do that in the winter. Just doesn't work. And yet we keep repeating ourselves. We're keeping on the same track. There isn't anything new in the history of the world. Or or consider literature, okay? Why are there only six types of conflict in any given story? There's researchers in literature will tell you there's only six types of conflict. Man versus self, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus the supernatural, man versus technology, and man versus society. Next time you watch a movie or read a book, just look for one of those six. It's always that, and it's only that six. Why is that the case? Or as Sam Wilson was careful to observe, whenever the Avengers fight someone, it's always the big three. Aliens, androids, and wizards. That's all there are. There's nothing new under the sun, and the preacher sees it clearly. He says this in verse 10. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Again, he's not saying that things didn't exist that that weren't there before, but that there's really no true new innovation. 
There's no true progress. And I know somebody here is ready to pull out their, their new iPhone and be like, look, I got a new one. But let me tell you, it's a calculator, a camera, a phone, and a contact list mashed into one. And we've had these for a few generations, right? Nothing new. Nothing new. We've cooked meat on a fire for millennia. Yeah, we upgrade the systems, we get a different grill out, but it's the same thing, even though our gadgets are new. Furthermore, you may feel depressed at this point, like, what is the point of life? That's the point here the, the writer, the preacher is trying to get us to. The preacher says there's no more progress. There's no real progress in humanity either. Look, at me, look with me at verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after Here's where it gets really depressing. You may know the saying, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And here he says, we don't even remember the past. Can you tell me the stories of your great, 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 great grandparents? You even know their names? Some of you may have done the ancestry thing and figured that out, but, but I'm really doubtful that you know their stories. You don't remember those former things. And, and sad to say, as impressive as we want to think that we are, couple generations down the line from us, they won't remember us. They won't know our names and our stories. We don't have true betterment and true progress really in life. Humanity's issues are all the same. They have been since, since day one. Hatred, war, racism, pride, greed, lust, murder, the list goes on. It's the same stuff. We're not tackling any new problems. We haven't really innovated any new ways. Nothing and nobody really makes any steps forward. And that's the point the preacher is trying to make here. If you're looking for meaning and purpose in earth sciences and social sciences and naturalism, it's utterly inadequate to provide or to reveal meaning in life. Science as the available providence, as the governing rule for humanity is empty. Get me here clearly. That doesn't mean that we should abandon studying earth sciences. It doesn't mean that we should abandon the social studies. We need them. They are common grace gifts from God. They're general revelation from Him to us to help us understand the world, to care for our world. The technologies and the sciences that we have today are important and helpful. We should pay attention to them and, and learn from them and care for one another through them. But if we're looking for meaning in them about our lives, we'll come up empty. So study science, get a STEM degree, study history and philosophy, good. But don't look for those things to give you value, to make you have purpose in your life. It's inadequate. It's incapable. If we return to what Holyoke said when he said science is the available providence of man, we find it's empty and it's inadequate to rule and define our lives. We need a better and a higher providence. And that's really what nature, these things, is intended to do. It's intended to lift our eyes beyond this earth and the material things of here and now, the natural things of here and now, to get from under the sun and look to heaven, to look and to see the God who has made all things. When we see from what the Scripture shows us that God is the creator then we can begin to put things in its right place. We can have rightly ordered loves, and we can see God as the creator and that he is the one who gives meaning and value and purpose to life. 
as the creator, as God is the one who has made all things and everything is governed and ruled by him, with him as the creator, there we can see what life is all about. And that's the point the preacher makes. Go with me just a few pages over to Ecclesiastes 3. Here he begins to talk about this all the more. Remember that leading question in verse 3 of chapter 1? What, what's the point? What does a man gain by all his toil and work under the sun? We ask it again in chapter 3, verse 9. Again, it's a big question for us in this book. He's, he's really diving in to help us understand what's the point of life. And he, he asks it again in verse 9, what gain has the worker from all his toil? And this time he perceives not just an empty, circleless world devoid of meaning, it's vanity. Now he sees someone else in the picture. He says in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Oh wait, there's, there's God here in the picture. And God has given meaning. God has given mankind, humanity, business to be done. He says, I've seen it. I've seen what God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've looked in, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's put eternity into man's heart. Here's a profound statement about where meaning and purpose comes from. God has given humanity definition and purpose and meaning. When we look to the world, we're not going to find it. But when we look to the God who created the world and everything in it, there is where we find purpose and meaning. And he describes what the purpose and meaning is as beautiful. It's beautiful in the time. Beautiful in its time. He's the one who defines all things. So science and history, they're good gifts from God, but they're not to be worshipped as God. They're not to give us meaning in life, but they're to point us to the God who helps us, who wants us to worship Him. They point us, nature points us to God and says, look at Him, look up, see Him, and worship Him, because they're beautiful. Think about it, you, you can't stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look and go and say, well, that's just nice, that's good. To stand and see something majestic and beautiful like that causes you to have to look up in a sense. They go, wow, the impressive fingerprint, creative power of God is there. They're beautiful. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he puts it this way. He says, the trouble for us is not that life refuses to keep still, but that we see only a fraction of its movement and of its subtle, intricate design. Instead of changelessness, there is something better, a dynamic, divine purpose with its beginning and end. Instead of frozen perfection, there is a kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece, which is the work of one creator. Nature, the things of this world, are to point us to the creator. Science, to point us to the creator. History to point us to the Creator who's made everything orderly and good and beautiful in its time. And that's why we discover that science and history is never enough to satisfy us because we've been created for something greater. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That's what the preacher says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. So, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Our searching and discovery and process and innovation, if just channeled at this earth, will end up dry. 
But if we realize how limited we are, and yet how God stands above all, and we see his glory, and we chase him for purpose and meaning, then we'll find it. Because he loves to give us his grace. He shows us his purpose. Or as the preacher put it in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. God is glorious and he's infinite. Nothing can be added to it. He's perfect. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. He's saying God is the creator. He's infinite. He's glorious. He's perfect in every way. And the purpose is so that we would fear before him. The idea here of fear is that we would glorify him, that we would worship him, that we would give thanks to him. When you look at this world and all that's here, do you, do you see God in his glory? Do you give thanks to him? This isn't a question of whether you believe God exists or not. This is a question of where you're seeking purpose and meaning. What, what God are you truly worshiping? You can believe God exists and still be secular and worship the God of naturalism and think that the things of science and the things of history and the things of this earth are the things worth worshiping and pursuing and having as your God, and you'll end up empty and dry. As the preacher says, everything is vanity. It's meaningless. But if you humble yourself to God the Creator and see the definition and the purpose that He has given from life, You'll experience his grace. You'll, you'll know eternity. You'll find his glory. You'll find meaning. Well, you say, well, what is that meaning? What is that purpose? Let me take you to one more preacher this morning, one other wise sage who would share his brief sermon with us this morning. This sermon was given at a construct of, and the intersection of secularism in the first century. It was the city of Athens where all different philosophies and worldviews and ideologies, they were all put on the table and discussed and argued and thought about ad nauseum. And one preacher gets to get in the room with all these philosophers and thinkers and share his sermon. And this is what he says. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So this God doesn't need the material things. He's the one who's designed it and made it. He's even made history and science and philosophy, all of that, he's determined their boundaries and their dwelling place in order that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So the preacher continues, he says, being then God's offspring, we not ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man, naturalism. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here he says, the natural world, the world, the temples that you worship of stone, of images, they don't provide it. But God has broken in, he's overlooked, and he says, now today, repent, repent, because God himself has sent one who has broken the natural cycle of the world where we live and die. He says, Christ has come and he has lived and died and was raised to life again. And God is the one who gives us purpose and meaning. And so he says, repent and come to a God who has created all things. Turn from finding value and meaning in the stuff of this world and look for meaning in the God who has created this world, who has changed this world, who has redeemed this world through his son. Look to Christ. We repent and we come to God through Jesus and we find meaning and value in what Jesus has described, Jesus has declared. Theologians in the Westminster Assembly, they sought to define the question, what is the purpose or what is the chief end of man? And they answered the question in this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the value, that's the purpose and the meaning that we would have for life. To look to God, to enjoy Him forever, to turn from our sin, to turn from thinking naturalistically, secular minds and thinking too low and looking to God's grace and kindness to us in Jesus, turning from our sin and believing in Him. From there, we find His mercy and grace, and there we can enjoy God forever. God has done it so that we would fear before Him, that we would love Him and know Him. You won't find meaning in the natural things of this world. You will find meaning in the God who has created all things, who loves us, has given us a great purpose to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your kindness. You call us to repent today, to turn from our, our lives of secularism, where we can live and think without You. We, we look just to the material, natural things of this world and we ignore your grace. We ignore and suppress the truth of who you are. We fail to give you thanks. Lord, lift our eyes to you to help us see who you are as a creator, the only wise God. Help us through the things of this earth that we see to worship you rightly. And so we repent of our, our forgetfulness, our, uh, our ignorance of you, our avoidance of you. And we thank you for Jesus who broke the cycle of life and death and was raised to life again so that we might have life. And we trust you and glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name.